0: There are a lot of podcasts out here, and what you add to your playlist matters. The Bello Collective is a team of power listeners and industry experts who are on a mission to expand the stories you hear and the ways you hear them. They deliver under-the-radar gems your algorithm is missing straight to your inbox every other week. They also publish thoughtful podcast criticism and examine how the podcast industry is growing and changing in real time. Subscribe to the Bello Collective newsletter and read their latest stories at bellocollective.com.
2: On the ninth day of the impeachment trial of President Donald Trump, senators have a second day to ask questions through the Chief Justice to House Managers and White House Counsel. As senators pass their questions on small cards in five-minute rounds, the question of the testimony of witnesses and documents looms large over Friday's proceedings. This is The Impeachment, Day 9.
3: Oh, the Senator from Washington.
4: Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question to the desk for the House Managers.
3: Thank you. Senator Murray asks the House Managers. Yesterday, when asked about why the House did not amend or reissue subpoenas after it passed its resolution authorizing its impeachment inquiry, the House Managers touched upon the House having the sole power of impeachment as specified by Article 1 of the Constitution. Could you further elaborate as to why that authority controls, despite any arguments brought forth by members of the defense team contesting the validity of those subpoenas?
4: Mr. Chief Justice and uh, Senators, that's a good question. The answer is that these were validly issued subpoenas under the House rules. The White House argument to the contrary is wrong, and it would have profound negative implications for how Congress and our democracy function. On January 9, 2019, the House adopted its rules like we do every Congress, and these rules gave the committee the power to issue subpoenas. They're not ambiguous rules, and here is the relevant portion of Rule 11 on slide 55. The House's standing rules give each committee subpoena power for the purpose of carrying out any of its functions and duties as it considers necessary. This investigation began on September 9th before the speaker's announcement on September 24th that it would become part of the impeachment inquiry umbrella. The president doesn't dispute that the subpoenas issued by these committees were fully within their respective jurisdiction. The argument is that somehow by declaring that this investigation also falls under an inquiry to consider articles of impeachment which gives Congress actually greater authority as somehow it nullifies the traditional oversight authority and this just doesn't make any sense. Now the president counters that we have to take a full vote on impeachment first because that's what's been done in the past. In the Nixon inquiry, however, the Judiciary Committee needed a House resolution to delegate subpoena power, and that's different than the committee standing rules today. Precedent actually compels the opposite conclusion. Several federal judges have been investigated, impeached, and convicted in the Senate without the House having ever taken an official vote to authorize the inquiry, and a federal court recently confirmed there was no need for a formal vote of the full House to commence impeachment proceedings. But even assuming a House vote was necessary, there was a vote. The text of House Resolution 660 declared that the six investigative committees of the House were directed to continue their ongoing investigations as part of the existing House of Representatives Inquiry and whether there were sufficient grounds for the House of Representatives to exercise its constitutional power to impeach. And the committee report, which accompanies the resolution, specifically described the subpoenas that had been issued by the investigating committees and said, quote, all subpoenas to the executive branch remain in full force. So why didn't the House Committee just reissue these subpoenas after the resolution? Short answer is they didn't need to. The subpoenas were already fully authorized. In any event, even after the resolution passed, the committees issued subpoenas to Mick Mulvaney, Robert Blair, four other witnesses, and the President continued to block those subpoenas. The argument about a full House vote really is just an excuse about President Trump's obstruction. The President refused to comply with the House subpoenas before the House vote and after the House vote. The only logical explanation is the one that President Trump gave us all along. He was determined to fight all the subpoenas because, in President Trump's view, according to what he said, he can do whatever he wants.
3: Mr. Chief Justice. Senator from Kentucky. I have a question to present to the desk for the uh, House Manager Schiff and for the
2: President's counsel. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky attempts to ask the Chief Justice a question that would appear to that would appear to name the alleged whistleblower
3: the presiding officer declines to read the question as submitted the senator from montana
5: mr chief justice i send the question to the desk for the house managers
3: thank you senator tester asks the house managers Yesterday, Mr. Dershowitz stated, quote, If a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. End quote. Do you believe there is any limit to the type or scope of quid pro quo a sitting president could engage in with a foreign entity as long as the intent of the sitting president is to get reelected in what he or she believes? is in the public's best
6: interest. Chief Justice, Senator, there is no limiting principle to the argument that we heard last night from the President's team. That is, if there's a quid pro quo that the President believes will help him get reelected, and he believes his re-election is in the national interest, then it doesn't matter how corrupt that quid pro quo is. It's astonishing that on the floor of this body someone would would make that argument. Now, it didn't begin that way in the beginning of the president's defense, but what we have seen over the last couple days is a descent into constitutional madness because that way madness lies. If we are to accept the premise that a president essentially can do whatever he wants, engage in whatever quid pro quo he wants, I will give you this if you will give me that to help me get elected. I will give you military dollars if you will give me help in my reelection, if you will give me illicit foreign interference in our election. Now, the only reason you make that argument is because you know your client is guilty and dead to rights. That is an argument made of desperation. Now, what's so striking to me is Almost half a century ago, we had a president who said, well, when the president does it, that means it is not illegal. That, of course, was Richard Nixon. Watergate is now 40 to 50 years behind us. Have we learned nothing in the last half century? Have we learned nothing at all? It seems like we're back to where we were. The president says it it's not illegal, or Donald Trump's version under Article II, I can do whatever I want, or Professor Dershowitz's point, if if the president believes it helps his re-election, it is therefore in the national interest, he can do whatever he wants. In fact, much as we thought that we progressed post-Watergate and we enacted Watergate reforms and we tried to insulate the Justice Department from interference by the presidency, we tried to put an end to the political abuses of that department, as much as we thought we enacted campaign finance reforms, we are right back to where we were a half century ago and I would argue we may be in a worse place because this time, this time, that argument may succeed. That argument, if the president says it, it can't be illegal, failed. And Richard Nixon was forced to resign. But that argument may succeed here, now. That means we're not back to where we are. We are worse off than where we are. That is the normalization of lawlessness. I would hope that every American would recognize that it's wrong to seek foreign help in an American election, that Americans should decide American elections. I would hope and I believe that every American understands that, and every American understands that's true for Democratic presidents and Republican ones. What president is not gonna think he has a credible reason to investigate his opponent? What president is gonna think he doesn't have a credible reason or wouldn't be able to articulate one or come up with some fig leaf? They compounded the dangerous argument that they made that no quid pro quo is c- too corrupt. If you think it'll help your election, they compounded it by saying, and if what you want is targeting your rival, it's even more legitimate. That way, madness lies. The
3: question from Senator Kramer and Young is for the Council for the president. Manager Schiff regularly states that if the president is innocent, he would agree to all of the witnesses and documents that the managers want. Is the president the first innocent defendant not to waive his rights?
7: Mr. Chief Justice, Senator, thank you for that question, uh, because the answer is obviously no. The president is not the first innocent defendant who decided not to waive his rights. And I think it is striking and shocking that one of the arguments that has been repeatedly deployed by the House managers throughout these proceedings, we heard Manager Nadler say, only the guilty hide evidence. Only the guilty don't respond to subpoenas. And Manager Nadler, uh, excuse me, Manager Schiff say that this is not the way innocent people act. Well, of course, that's contrary to the very spirit of our American justice system, where people have rights and asserting those rights cannot be interpreted as an indication of guilt. That is expressly forbidden by the laws and by the Constitution. And the Supreme Court explained in Borden-Kircher versus Hayes, a case that's cited in our trial memorandum, that the very idea of punishing someone, which is what the House managers are attempting to do here with their um, obstruction of Congress charge, to say that, If the president insists on the constitutional prerogatives of his office, if the president insists that, like virtually every president at least since Nixon, to the American system of justice and to our principles of due process, to our principles of acknowledging that rights can be defended, that rights exist to be defended, and asserting those rights cannot be treated either as something punishable or as evidence of guilt. there would be a long line of past presidents, presidents, excuse me.
3: Senator Jones's question is for the house managers. Aside from the house's constitutional impeachment authority, please identify specifically which provision or provisions, if any, in the house rules or a house resolution authorized the subpoenas issued by the house committees prior to the passage of house resolution 660. In addition, please list the subpoenas that were issued after House Resolution 660.
6: Specifically, the subpoenas that went out after the passage of the House Resolution were a subpoena to John Eisenberg, a subpoena to Brian McCormick, Robert Blair, Michael Ellis, Preston Wells-Griffith, and uh, Mick Mulvaney. But let me underscore something that uh, my colleague... Uh, Manager Lofgren had to say, And, and let me break this down if I can in very practical terms. What is the practical import of what counsel for the President would argue? And it is this. Let's say that a Democrat is elected in November. And let's say that any one of you that chair a committee in the Senate determine that you think that the next President has engaged in something questionable. So there you are, Democratic President, you're a chair. You start to do oversight, you issue subpoenas. You start to learn more, and what you learn becomes more and more concerning. And you issue more subpoenas. And the administration, in an effort to cover up their misconduct, says, we're not going to comply with any of your subpoenas. We're going to fight all subpoenas. And they come up with one bad faith excuse after another as to why they don't have to comply. And as you investigate further, and you're able to overcome the wall of obstruction, then you begin an impeachment inquiry. And that leads to the passage of yet another resolution. They would argue to you that all the work you did before you determined that it merited potential impeachment must be thrown out. That they were perfectly empowered to obstruct you in your oversight responsibility. That you must begin with your comp- conclusion. That you must begin with the conclusion that you are prepared to impeach the president before you issue a single subpoena, otherwise they can say whatever you did before you got to that place should be thrown out. Now we did not have the Justice Department do the initial investigation here. Why? Because Bill Barr turned it down. The same Attorney General mentioned in that July 25th call said there's nothing to see here. So there was no DOJ investigation, there was no special counsel investigation. It wasn't as if someone like Ken Starr handed us a package and said here's the evidence Now you can take up a resolution, an impeachment resolution, because we have done the investigative work. Now we had to do that work ourselves. And they would have you believe that any subpoena you issue as a part of your oversight responsibility, that down the road reveals evidence that leads you to embark on an impeachment inquiry must be disregarded. That cannot and is not the law. It would render the oversight function meaningless. Court after court that has looked at the Congress's power to issue subpoenas have all reached the same conclusion, and that is, if you have the power to legislate, you have the power to oversee. Here we have a violation of the Impoundment Control Act, that is, Congress passes military spending, the President doesn't spend it, he gives no reason, he keeps it a secret, we're investigating that, that can't be more squarely within the oversight power of Congress to find out why aid we appropriated was not going out the door. They would say, you can't look into that, unless you're prepared to impeach the president and announce it firsthand. That's the import of that argument. It would cripple your oversight capacity. And without your oversight capacity, your legislative capacity is crippled.
3: The senator from Ohio. Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question to the desk on behalf of myself, Senators Toomey, Cornyn, Crapo, Ernst, and Moran. Thank you. question from Senator Portman and the other senators is for the counsel for the president. I have been surprised to hear the House managers repeatedly invoke constitutional law professor Jonathan Turley to support their position, including playing a part of a video of him. Isn't it true that Professor Turley opposed this impeachment in the House and has also said that abuse of power is exceedingly difficult to prove? alone without any accompanying criminal allegation abuse of power has never been the sole basis for a presidential impeachment and was not proven in this case
7: mr chief justice senators thank you for that question and that is exactly correct professor turley was very critical uh, of the entire process in the house and of the charges that the house Uh, that the House Democrats were considering here, both the abuse of power charge and the obstruction charge. And he explained that this was a rushed process that had not uh, adequately pursued an investigation, that, as the, the Senators point out in the question, abuse of power is an exceedingly difficult theory to use to impeach a president, and it has never been used without alleging violations of the law and I think that in the discussions we've had over the past week and a half, we've pointed, <clears throat> excuse me, pointed that out multiple times. Every presidential impeachment in our history, including even the Nixon impeachment proceedings, which didn't actually lead to an impeachment, have used charges that include specific violations of the law and the criminal law. Andrew Johnson was charged uh, mostly in counts that involved violation of the Tenure of Office Act which the Congress had specifically made punishable by fine and imprisonment, and even wrote into the statute that violation would constitute uh, either a high crime or a high misdemeanor, but one of those terms to make it clear that it was going to be used to trigger an impeachment. In the proceedings, uh, in the Nixon impeachment inquiry, each of the articles of impeachment there, um, except for the the obstruction of Congress charge, was, was sort of treated separately on the obstruction theory, included specific violations of law. There were specific violations alleged in the second article of impeachment, which is often um, sort of referred to loosely as the abuse of power article. It wasn't actually titled abuse of power. It didn't charge abuse of power. The specifications there were violations of law, violating the constitutional rights of citizens, violating the laws governing executive branch agencies unlawful electronic surveillance uh, using the CIA and others, specific violations of law. And clearly in the Clinton impeachment, President Clinton was impeached for perjury and obstruction of justice. Those are crimes. And while Professor Turley does not take the view that a crime is necessarily required, he pointed out here that there was not nearly a sufficient basis and not nearly a sufficient record compiled in the House of Representatives to justify an abusive power charge. He also was very critical of the obstruction of Congress theory. uh, And he pointed out that it would be an abusive power by Congress.
3: Senator Brown and Wyden asked the following question for the House managers. During yesterday's proceedings, the president's counsel failed to give an adequate response to a question related to whether acceptance of information provided by a foreign country to a political campaign or candidate would constitute a violation of the law, and whether offers of such information should be reported to the FBI. FBI Director Christopher Wray, who was appointed by President Trump, has said, quote, if any public official or member of any campaign is contacted by any nation state, or anybody acting on behalf of a nation state about influencing or interfering with our election, then that is something that the FBI would want to know about," end quote. And we'd like to make sure people tell us information promptly so that we can take the appropriate steps to protect the American people, end quote. If President Trump remains in office, what signal does that send to other countries' intent on interfering with our elections in the future, and what might we expect from those countries and the president?
5: To Take the last part first. It would send a terrible message to autocrats and dictators and enemies of democracy and the free world for the president and his team to essentially put out there for all to consume, that it's acceptable in the United States to solicit foreign interference in our free and fair elections or accept political dirt simply to try to cheat in the next election. Now, the single most important lesson that we learned from 2016 was that nobody should seek or welcome foreign interference in our elections. But now we have this president and his council essentially saying it's okay. It is not okay. It strikes at the very heart of what the framers of the Constitution were concerned about. Abuse of power, betrayal by the president of his oath of office. Corrupting the integrity of our democracy and our free and fair elections by entangling oneself with foreign powers. That's at the heart of what the framers of the Constitution were concerned about. Don't just trust me. We have several folks who have made this observation. It is illegal for any person to solicit, accept, or receive anything of value from a foreign national in connection with a U.S. election. This is not a novel concept. Election Intervention from foreign governments has been considered unacceptable since the beginning of our nation. It is wrong, it is corrupt, it is lawless, it's an abuse of power, it's impeachable, and it should lead to the removal of President Donald John Trump.
1: Chief Justice.
8: Senator from Missouri. I send to the desk a question on my own behalf and on behalf of Senator Lee. Thank you.
3: The question from Senators Hawley and Lee is for counsel for the president. United States federal courts have held most prominently in the Blagojevich case that it is not unlawful for a public official to condition his official acts on official acts performed by another public officer. Is there any application to the allegations against President
7: Trump? Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, thank you for that question. Um, I think an important threshold point to make here is that uh, we're not even in the realm of exchanging official acts because there's been no proof of a quid pro quo here. We're not in the realm of a situation where there's one official act being traded for another. Uh, I think that we've gone through the evidence that makes it quite clear that both with respect to a uh, meeting with the president, a bilateral meeting, and with respect to the temporary pause on the security assistance, the evidence just doesn't stack up to show that President Trump linked either of those. Both took place, the meeting and the release of the aid without Ukrainians doing anything, announcing or beginning any investigations. There's nothing in the transcript linking them as a quid pro quo. The Ukrainians didn't even know that the um, there had been a temporary pause on the aid. And I could go on with the list of points on that. I think if there were any application hypothetically, it would come in the realm of the fact that in foreign policy, there are situations where there can be um, situations where one government wants some action from another and wants that action from another in a way that will condition other policies of one country you can say we would like you and this happens for example with the northern triangle countries we want you to do more to stop the flow of illegal immigration we're going to be conditioning some of our policies towards you unless and until you start doing a better job stopping the flow of illegal immigration, because it's a real problem on our southern border. That happens all the time. And when there's something legitimate to look into, there could be a situation where the United States would say, you've got to do better on corruption. You've got to do better on these specific areas of corruption, or we're not going to be able to keep having the same relationship with you. One example like that, I I believe we pointed out that um, uh, aid was held up to Afghanistan. President Trump held up aid to Afghanistan specifically because of concerns about corruption. And in situations like that, there'd be nothing wrong whatsoever with conditioning one policy approach on a foreign country uh, modifying their policy to be more in line, to attune more directly To U.S. interests. That's part of what foreign policy is all about. And that could arise in the situation of even um, investigations.
3: Senator Thune and the other senators asked the counsel for the president. On March 6, 2019, Speaker Nancy Pelosi said, quote, impeachment is so divisive to the country that unless there's something so compelling and overwhelming and bipartisan, I don't think we should go down that path because it divides the country," End quote. Alexander Hamilton also warned in Federalist 65 against the, quote, persecution of an intemperate or designing majority in the House of Representatives with respect to impeachment. In evaluating the case against the President, should the Senate take into account the partisan nature of the impeachment proceedings in the House?
8: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate. Absolutely, you should take that into account. That's dispositive. That should end it. Based on the statements that we heard the last time from our friends on the Democratic side, that's a reason why you shouldn't have an impeachment. Speaker Pelosi was right when she said that. It's political election, election interference, and it's wrong. They don't talk about The horrible consequences to our country of doing that, but they would be terrible, they would tear us apart for generations, and the American people wouldn't accept it. Let me address in that context the importance of the vote for their inquiry, which also had bipartisan opposition.
3: Senator from Hawaii.
4: Aloha. I send a question to the desk for the House managers. Thank you. question from
3: Senator Hirono for the House managers reads as follows. In contrast to arguments by the president's counsel, acting White House chief of staff Mick Mulvaney stated that President Trump held up aid to Ukraine to get his politically motivated investigations. He claimed, quote, we do that all the time with foreign policy, end quote, end quote, get over it, end quote. What was different about President Trump's withholding of aid to Ukraine from prior aid freezes? Are you aware of any other presidents who have withheld foreign aid as a bribe to extract personal benefits?
6: Thank you, Senator. I'll I'll respond to the question, but uh, let me begin with something in the category of you can't make this stuff up. Today, while we've been debating whether a president can be impeached for uh, essentially bogus claims of privilege for attempting to use the courts to cover up misconduct the justice department in resisting house subpoenas is in court today and was asked well if the congress can't come to the court to enforce its subpoenas because as we know they're in here arguing congress must go to court to enforce its subpoenas but they're in the court saying congress thou shalt not do that so the judge says if the Congress can't enforce its subpoenas in court, then what remedy is there? And the Justice Department lawyer's response is impeachment. Impeachment. <laughs> you can't make this up. I mean, what, what more evidence do we need of the bad faith of this effort to cover up? I said the other day they're in this court making this argument. They're down the street making the other argument. I didn't think they'd make it on the same day but that's exactly what's going on now in response to the question about how does this aid different this hold different from other holds it's certainly appropriate to ask that question the laws congress passed authorizing this appropriation did not allow for the hold by this president and as the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, found it violated the law to hold the aid the way it did. Once the Department of Defense, in consultation with the Department of State, certified that Ukraine had met the anti-corruption benchmarks required under the law, there was nothing that would allow for a hold. The money had to flow. And that was intentional. Military assistance to Ukraine is critical to our national security. It has overwhelming bipartisan support. And recall that in the spring of 2019, the Defense Department certified Ukraine had met all of the anti-corruption benchmarks. The Department of State sent the Senate a letter saying that the benchmarks had been met. It issued a press release saying that the aid was moving forward. It began to spend the funds to help Ukraine. But then the president stepped in. Without legal authority, he secretly had placed a hold on the aid. Now the president's counsel in their presentation gives specific examples of past holds as if we cannot distinguish one for a corrupt reason and one that is for a policy reason. In many of their examples, the law explicitly provided the executive branch the authority to pause, reevaluate, or cancel foreign aid programs as the situation in a recipient country evolved. For example, with regard to foreign assistance to El Salvador, Honduras, or Guatemala, The law explicitly allows the Secretary of State to, quote, suspend in whole or in part that assistance if at any time the Secretary deems that, quote, sufficient progress has not been made by a central government on a host of priorities, from respecting human rights to upholding the law. Those are the priorities that you, the Senate, agreed to, and the President was required to implement them. Similarly, aid to Afghanistan is subject to periodic reevaluations. By law, and the law explicitly directs the Secretary of State should, quote, suspend assistance for the government of Afghanistan should it be assessed that the Afghan government is, quote, failing to make measurable progress in meeting certain anti-corruption, human rights, and counterterrorism benchmarks. The overthrow of the democratically elected government in Egypt, we've had that brought up as another example. Members of this body, including Senators McCain, Leahy, and Graham, pressed the Obama administration to suspend military aid. It wasn't hidden from the Senate. It was urged on the administration by the Senate. Senators pressed for that aid to be withheld because the law was clear in instances of a military coup. Aid must be suspended. Senators McCain and Graham wrote a op-ed in the Washington Post. Not all coups are created equal, but a coup is still a coup. Morsi, that's the deposed leader of Egypt, quote, was elected by a majority of voters, and US law requires the suspension of foreign assistance. I could go on and on with examples. No one has suggested you can't condition aid. But I would hope that we would all agree that you can't condition aid for a corrupt purpose, to try to get a foreign power to cheat in your election. I send a question to the desk on behalf of myself, Senator Cotton, Ernst, Young, Hawley, Risch, Fisher, and Hoven.
3: Thank you. Senator Bozeman and the other senators pose a question to both sides. In the House manager's opening statement, they argue that it is necessary to pursue impeachment because, quote, the president's misconduct cannot cannot be decided at the ballot box, for we cannot be assured that the vote will be fairly won, end quote. How would acquitting the president prevent voters from making an informed decision in the 2020 presidential election? Council goes first.
8: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate. That's exactly who should decide who should be president, the voters. All power comes from the people in this country. That's why you're here, that's why people are elected in the House, and that's why the President is elected. It's exactly who should decide the question. Particularly in a case like this, where it's purely partisan, let's leave it to the people of the United States. Let's trust them. They're asking you not to trust them. Maybe they don't trust them. Maybe they won't like the result. We should trust them. That's who should decide who the president of this country should be. It'll be a few months from now. And they should decide. Thank
6: you. Thank you, counsel. Chief Justice, uh, Senator, I appreciate the question. President Trump must be removed from office because of his ongoing abuse of power, threatens the integrity of the next election. The president has made no bones about the fact that he is willing to seek foreign intervention to help him cheat in the next election. Now, counsel for the president says the next election is the remedy. It's not the remedy when the president is trying to seek to cheat in that very election. This is why the founders did not put a requirement that a president can only be impeached in their first term. Indeed, at that time, of course, there weren't term limits on the presidency. If it were the intent of the framers to say that a president can't be impeached in an election year, they would have said so. Now, they didn't for a reason, because they were concerned about a president who might try to cheat in that very election. Now, counsel, as I I was getting to a moment ago, made the argument, if you make the decision, as impartial jurors, that the president has violated the Constitution, he has abused his power, he should be convicted or moved from office, that the country will not accept it. I have more confidence in the American people than that. But I will assure you of this. If you make the decision that a fair trial can be conducted without hearing from witnesses, the American people will not accept that judgment because the American people understand what goes into a fair trial. And they understand that a fair trial requires both sides to have the opportunity to present their case. We would like to present our case. We'd like to call our witnesses. We'd like to rely on more than our argumentation. There are a few things about this trial that. Americans agree on, but one thing they are squarely in agreement on. Well, two. They believe a trial should have witness testimony, and they want to hear from John Bolton. That is the overwhelming consensus of the American people, and it's consistent with common sense. Let's give the country a trial they can be proud of. Let's show that at least the process worked and that we followed the founders' intent that a trial have witnesses.
1: Senator from Colorado. Thank you. I send a question to the desk for myself and Senator Schatz and Senator Menendez. Thank you.
3: The question from Senators Bennett, Menendez and Schatz is to the House managers. If the Senate accepts the president's blanket assertion of privilege in the House impeachment inquiry, what are the consequences to the American people? How will the Senate ensure that the current president or f- a future president will remain transparent and accountable? How will this affect the separation of powers? And in this context, could you address the president's counsel's claim that the president's advisors are entitled to the same protections as a whistleblower?
9: Privileges are limited. We have voted to impeach the president for, among other things, Article 2 of the impeachment, is total defiance of House subpoenas. And the president announced in advance, I will defy all the subpoenas. What does this mean? It means there is no information to Congress. It means a claim of monarchical dictatorial power. If Congress has no information, it cannot act. If the president can defy, now he can dispute certain specific uh, uh, claims, you can claim privilege, etc. But to defy categorically all subpoenas, to announce in advance you're going to do that, and to do it is to say that Congress has no power at all, only the executive has power. That's why Article 2 is impeaching him for abuse of Congress. That's why, for much lesser degree of offense, Richard Nixon was, was impeached for abuse of Congress for the same uh, um, defiance of any attempt to, uh, by the Congress to investigate. But this is, and what are the consequences? The consequences, if this is to be, um, um, if he's to get away with it, is that any subpoena you vote in the future, any information you want in the future from any future president may be denied you. With no excuses, announced in advance of the of the subpoenas, it eviscerates Congress and establishes the Department The executive department is a total dictatorship. That's the consequences.
0: Each week, Daniela and Ed speak with progressive leaders and thinkers to get their insights on what's happening in the White House and the halls of Congress in Washington. But progress doesn't just happen in D.C. Change can happen in any community around the country. The Tent digs into those ideas and explores the diverse backgrounds of people committed to fighting for progress in America. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Politics, policy, and progress, all under one big tent.
3: The senator from Maine.
0: I
4: send a question to the desk on behalf of myself and Senators Crapo, Blunt, and Rubio. Thank you.
3: The question from Senator Collins and the other senators for both parties... Are there legitimate circumstances under which a president could request a foreign country to investigate a U.S. citizen, including a political rival, who is not under investigation by the U.S. government? If so, what are they and how do they apply to the present case? The House goes first.
6: Mr. Chief Justice, uh, Senator, it would be hard for me to contemplate circumstances where that would be appropriate where it would be appropriate for the President of the United States to seek a political investigation of an opponent. One of the, I think, most important post-Watergate reforms was to divorce decisions about specific cases, specific prosecutions from the White House to the Justice Department to build a wall. One of the many norms that has broken down under this presidency is that wall has been obliterated, where the President has affirmatively and aggressively sought to investigate his rivals. I cannot conceive of circumstances where that is appropriate. Um, It may be appropriate for the Justice Department acting independently and in good faith to initiate investigation. There's a process for doing that. We heard testimony about that. You can make requests under the mutual legal assistance treaty, the MLAT process, when a foreign country has evidence involving a criminal case involving a US person. There is a legitimate way to to do that. That didn't happen here. In fact, when Bill Barr's name was first revealed, when that transcript was brought to light, the Justice Department immediately said, we have nothing to do with this. We have nothing to do with this. Um, Here, this particular domestic political errand was being done by the president's personal lawyer. Um, I wanted to just follow up also, while I can, Senator, on my colleagues' comments in terms of mixed motives. If you conclude the president acted with mixed motives, some of them corrupt and forbidden, some of them legitimate, you should vote to convict. That principle is deeply rooted in our legal tradition. It is commonplace in civil and criminal law going back centuries. For example, in describing the standard for corrupt motive for obstruction, the Seventh Circuit rejected any requirement that a defendant's only or even main purpose was to obstruct the due administration of justice. Instead, the court explained, A defendant is guilty if his motives included any corrupt forbidden goals. That case, United States v. Queto, which I cited earlier, is not only relevant here, but that case was argued by Professor Dershowitz, and he lost. He made the argument he's made and the president's lawyers have made today. They lost that case, and for a good reason. It's contrary to the history of our legal traditions. If someone, uh, and this is, the the founders were concerned, for example, that a president might be charged with bribing members of the Electoral College.
7: Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, thank you for that question. Um, I'd like to start by pointing out that the question sort of assumes that there is a request for an investigation in a foreign country of a United States person. I'd just like to bring it back, though, here to the transcript of the July 25th call, where President Trump didn't ask President Zelensky specifically for an investigation or an investigation into Vice President Biden or his son, Hunter. I mean, there's a lot of loose talk and sort of shorthand reference to it that way. But what he refers to is the incident in which the prosecutor was fired. And the first thing that he says in that whole exchange is talking about the prosecutor being fired. And and he says it sounds horrible to him. And the situation with Burisma. And and all that the the president says is, so if you can look into it, it sounds horrible. It sounds like a bad situation. That's not calling for an investigation necessarily into Vice President Biden or his son, but the situation in which the prosecutor had been fired, which affected anti-corruption efforts in the Ukraine, And President Zelensky responded by saying, the issue of the investigation of the case is actually the issue of making sure to restore the honesty, so we will take care of that. And he's explaining that he understands that it's an issue that has to do with, was an investigation there, over there, that their prosecutor was handling, derailed in a way that affected their anti-corruption efforts, and it's something worth looking into. It's the President making clear that we're not saying that's off limits. It sounds bad to the US as well. But let me get more specifically to the question, is there any situation where it might be legitimate to ask for an investigation overseas? Yes, if there was a conduct by a US person overseas that potentially violated uh, the law of that country, but didn't violate the law of this country, but there was a national interest in having some information about that and understanding what went on, then it would be perfectly legitimate to suggest this is something worth looking into. We have an interest in knowing about this, even if it's not something that would mean a criminal investigation here in the United States. And so that could arise in various circumstances where a person had done something overseas, but there was a national interest in understanding.
3: The senator from Idaho. Mr.
6: Chief Justice, I send a question to the desk on behalf of myself and Senators Risch, Graham, Ernst, Fisher, Cruz, and Purdue. Thank you.
3: The question from Senator Crapo and the other senators for counsel for the president. How many witnesses have been presented to the Senate at this point in this trial? How many pages of documentary evidence have been put in the record before the Senate in this trial? And how many other clips and transcripts of evidence have been presented to the Senate in this trial?
7: Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, thank you for that question. And I think it is important to recognize that because the House managers keep talking about the need for witnesses, you can't have a trial without witnesses. You've seen a lot of witnesses, there were 17 witnesses. Who were deposed uh, and testified in public, uh, 12 in public, 17 who were in closed hearings below. So far, you have seen in these presentations 192 video clips from 13 different witnesses. So testimony was shown here to you, just as you would in a trial in an ordinary court sometimes play the video of a deposition instead of having the witness take the stand. You've seen video clips from 13 different witnesses. The House managers have dramatically wheeled into the Senate a record. I think it was reported as being 29,000 pages. I I think the more official number is 28,578 pages. So you've got over 28,000 pages of documents submitted into the record provisionally in evidence in this trial, subject later to potential objections for hearsay and other evidentiary objections. There's no need to go on to anything else when you've already seen so much, and the House managers had their case, chance to prepare their case.
3: Mr. Chief Justice. Senator from Arizona. I submit a question to the desk for the President's counsel on behalf of myself, Senators Manchin,
0: Senators Murkowski, and Senator Collins.
3: Thank you. The question from Senator Sinema and the other senators for counsel, counsel for the President. The Logan Act prohibits any U.S. citizen without the authority of the United States from communicating with any foreign government with the intent to influence that government's conduct in relation to any controversy with the United States. Will the President assure the American public that private citizens will not be directed to conduct American foreign policy or national security policy unless they have been specifically and formally designated by the President and the State Department to do so.
7: Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, thank you for the question. Um, Let me preface it, let me answer in several parts. The first is, I just want to make clear that there was no conduct of foreign policy being carried on here by a private person. Uh, The testimony was clear from Ambassador Volker, and I I assume that the reference would be to Mr. Giuliani, the president's private counsel. Uh, Ambassador Volker was clear that um, he understood Mr. Giuliani just to be a source of information for the president and someone who knew about Ukraine and someone who spoke to the president. And in fact, it was um, the testimony that it was the Ukrainians, Andrei Yermak, who asked to be connected to Mr. Giuliani simply because he was someone who could provide information to the president. Um, and Ambassador Volker testified that it was not his understanding, he did not believe, that uh, Mr. Giuliani was carrying out sort of policy directors of the president, but rather indicating his views of what he thought would be something useful for the Ukrainians to convince the president of their anti-corruption uh bona fides so just wanted to make that point it is of course the president's policy is always to abide by the law by the laws um i i am i'm not in a position to make pledges for the president here but the president's policy is always to abide by the laws and would continue uh, to do so i think it is worth pointing out that many presidents starting with um president washington have relied on uh, persons who are their trusted confidants uh, but who are not actually employees of the government to assist in the conduct of foreign diplomacy. Um, President Washington relied on Governor Morris um, to uh, carry messages in certain circumstances, I believe, to the French. Uh, FDR had his confidant who He relied on in certain circumstances to be a go-between with foreign powers. I don't think that there is anything, again, as I said, it was not here, but there would not be anything improper for a president in some circumstances to rely on a personal confidant to be able to convey messages or receive messages back and forth.
3: The question from Senator Durbin to the House managers would you please respond to the answer that was given by President's counsel to Senator Sinema's question?
6: A Senator, a Chief Justice, um, in answer to that question, we heard a rather breathtaking admission by the President's lawyer. Uh, and it was said in an understated way, and so you might have missed it. But what the President's counsel said was that no foreign policy was being conducted by a private party here. That is, Rudy Giuliani was not conducting US foreign policy. Rudy Giuliani was not conducting policy. That is a remarkable admission, because to the degree that they have attempted to suggest or claim or um, insinuate that this is a policy difference, that a concern over burden sharing or something corruption was a policy issue, They have now acknowledged that the person in charge of this was not conducting policy. That is a startling admission. So the investigations that Giuliani was charged with trying to get Ukraine to announce into Joe Biden, into this Russian propaganda theory, they have just admitted were not part of policy. They were not policy conducted by Mr. Giuliani. So what were they? They were, in the words of Dr. Hill, a domestic political errand, not to be confused with policy. They have just undermined their entire argument, even as to mixed motives, because the man in charge of it was undergoing this domestic errand. Now, you heard a suggestion there. He was only doing this, Giuliani was only doing this because he was being asked by Andre Yermak. That is laughable. Giuliani tried to get the meeting with Zelensky, remember? And he couldn't get in the door, and then he announced that there are enemies around President Zelensky. And then they go into that phone call on July 25th, Ukrainians try to persuade the president, you don't have enemies in Ukraine, we're only friends. And what's the president's response? I want you to talk to Rudy. That's not policy being conducted there, that's a personal political errand. They just undermined their entire argument. Now, the President's counsel also essentially argues in terms of witnesses if their case is as strong as Mr. Schiff and Mr. Nadler and others say, then why do they need witnesses? Uh, you know, you can imagine the scene in any courtroom in America where before the trial begins, defense counsel for the defendant stands up and says, Your Honor, if the prosecution case is so strong, let them prove it without witnesses. That's essentially what's being argued here. Well, I will make an offer to opposing counsel who have said that this will stretch on indefinitely if you decide to have a single witness. Let's cabin the depositions to one week. In the Clinton trial, there was one week of depositions. And you know what the Senate did during that week? They did the business of the Senate. The Senate went back to its ordinary legislative business while the depositions were being conducted. You want the Clinton model? Let's use the Clinton model. Let's take a week. Let's take a week to have a fair trial. You can continue your business. We can get the business of the country done. Is that too much to ask in the name of fairness? That we follow the Clinton model? That we take one week? I mean, are we really driven by the timing of the State of the Union? Should that be our guiding principle? Can't we take one week to hear from these witnesses? I think we can. I think we should. I think we must.
3: Manager.
4: Mr. Chief Justice.
3: The Senator from Alaska.
4: Mr. Chief Justice, I send to the desk a question submitted on behalf of myself and Senator Schatz, directed to both the White House counsel and the House managers.
3: Thank you. The question from Senators Murkowski and Schatz directed to both parties. Would you agree that almost any action a president takes, or indeed any action the vast majority of politicians take, is, to one degree or another, inherently political? Where is the line between permissible political actions and impeachable political actions? counsel
7: will go first. Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, thank you for that question. And I think that hits, the question really hits the nail on the head. As I mentioned the other day, in a representative democracy, elected officials almost always have at least one eye looking onto the next election and how their actions, their policy decisions, their actions in office, will be received by the electorate. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. It's part of the way representative democracy works. So having part of your motives being looking towards the next election, looking towards how that will affect electoral chances, that's part of the nature of elected office. And to start getting into motives about, um, will this affect my prospects in the next election and calling that corrupt, and if you've got that as part of your motive, looking into whether you were doing something for electoral advantage and saying, that's going to be a corrupt motive, will say that you can be charged for wrongdoing with that or impeached is very dangerous because there's almost no way to get inside someone's head and parcel out which percentage was one motive, which percentage was another motive. If you start down that path, it's totally amorphous. And this is part of the the point that Professor Dershowitz was making and that we've made here a couple of times. This idea of impeaching a president on a theory of abuse of power that depends entirely on analyzing subjective motive, because that's what the House managers have suggested, that we're assuming there is an act on its face that is legitimate, that is within the president's authority. It's not on its face in any way unlawful or unconstitutional, but solely based on motive, we're going to impeach him. And by saying that, well, if it was really directed at the next election, that's the corrupt motive. That's a very dangerous path, because there is always some eye to the next election, and it ends up becoming a standard so malleable that it really is a substitute for a policy difference.
6: Uh, I think the answer is yes, that public officials are inherently political animals, and I don't mean that in a derogatory term. They run for office, they hold office, they conduct acts as political figures. But if we look at what Hamilton had to say about the core of offenses that warrant the impeachment power, he talked about the crimes being political in character and the remedies being political in character, because we're not talking about imprisonment here. We're not talking about taking away someone's liberty. So we're talking about a political punishment for a political crime. Now, what's a political crime? Yes, everyone in office has a political motivation. But certainly that doesn't mean that we can't draw a line between corrupt activity that is undertaken, yes, for a political reason, and non-corrupt activity. Indeed, we have to draw that line. Uh, Let's let's show what uh, Professor Dershowitz had to say about where we should draw the line.
9: And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be. The kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. The fact that he's announced his candidacy is a very good reason for upping the interest in his son. If he wasn't running for president, he's a has-been. He's the former vice president of the United States, okay, big deal. But if he's running for president, that's an enormous big deal.
6: So it is certainly true that when public officials take actions, they may have in mind when they make a policy judgment, what's the impact on my political career going to be, or what's the impact going to be on my re-election prospects, but that's a very different question than whether they can engage in a corrupt act to help their election, in this case, to get foreign help to cheat in an election. I think we can distinguish between the fact that political actors have political interests with what The president's defense would argue, and that is, if he believes it's in his reelection interest, then no quid pro quo is too corrupt. If if we go down that road, there is no limit to what this or any other president can do. Uh, There is no limit to what foreign powers will feel they can offer a corrupt president to help their reelection if that is the president we intend to establish.
0: Senator from
3: Wisconsin. Mr. Chief Justice. I send a question to the desk on behalf
1: of myself and Senators Hawley, Cruz, Kramer, Braun, Perdue, Barrasso, Rubio, Risch, Sullivan, Ernst, Scott of Florida, Danes, and Fisher, for, the house, for both the House Managers
3: with response from the Council of the President. Thank you. The question from Senator Johnson and the other senators for both parties. Recent reporting described two NSC staff holdovers from the Obama administration attending an all-hands meeting of NSC staff held about two weeks into the Trump administration and talking loudly enough to be overheard, saying we need to do everything we can to take out the president. On July 26, 2019, the House Intelligence Committee hired one of those individuals, Sean Misco. The report further describes relationships between Misco, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, and an individual alleged as the whistleblower. Why did your committee hire Sean Misko the day after the phone call between President Trump and Zelensky, and what role has he played throughout your committee's investigation? The House will begin.
6: First of all, there have been a lot of attacks uh, on my staff. And as I said when this issue came up earlier, uh, I'm appalled at some of the smearing of the professional people that work for the Intelligence Committee. Uh, Now this question refers to allegations in a newspaper article which are circulating smears on my staff and ask me to respond to those smears. And I will not dignify those smears on my staff by giving them any credence whatsoever. Uh, Nor will I share any information that I believe could or could not lead to the identification of the whistleblower. Um, I want to be very clear about something. Members of this body used to care about the protection of whistleblower identities. They didn't used to gratuitously attack members of committee staff. But now they do. Now they do. Now they'll take an unsubstantiated Repress article and use it to smear my staff. I think that's disgraceful. I think it's disgraceful. You know, whistleblowers are a unique um, and vital resource for the intelligence community. And why? Because unlike other whistleblowers who can go public with their information, whistleblowers in the intelligence community cannot because it deals with classified information. They must come to a committee. They must talk to the staff of that committee or to the inspector general. That is what they're supposed to do. Our system relies upon it. And when you jeopardize a whistleblower by trying to out them this way, then you are threatening not just this whistleblower, but the entire system. Now, the president would like that nothing better than that. And I'm sure the president is applauding this question, because he wants his pound of flesh. And he wants to punish anyone that, that has the courage to stand up to him. Well, I can't tell you who the whistleblower is because I don't know, but I can tell you who the whistleblower should be. It should be every one of us. Every one of us should be willing to blow the whistle on presidential misconduct. If it weren't for this whistleblower, we wouldn't know about this conduct, misconduct. And that might be just as well for this president, but it would not be good for this country. And I worry that future people that see wrongdoing are gonna watch how this person has been treated, the threats against this person's life, and they're gonna say, why stick my neck out? Is my name gonna be dragged through the mud? Will people join our staff if they know that their names are gonna be dragged through the mud? Thank you, Mr. Manager.
1: There's two responses that I'd, I'd like to get to. One, with regard to the issue of witnesses, in this case, the whistleblower. Mr. Schiff put the whistleblower issue front and center. With his own words, during the course of their investigation, he talked about the whistleblower testifying. Retribution is what is prohibited under the statute against a whistleblower. That's what what a whistleblower statute protects. That there's no retribution. In other words, they're not going to be fired for blowing the whistle. But this idea that there's complete anonymity, and I'm not saying that we should disclose the individual's name, and you have you handle that in executive session or any way you'd want, but we can't just say it's not a relevant inquiry to know who on the staff that conducted the primary investigation here was in communication with that whistleblower, especially after Mr. Schiff denied that his, he or his staff initially had even had any conversations with the whistleblower.
3: The senator from Michigan.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I send a
4: question to the desk on behalf of myself, Senator Cortez Masto, and Senator Rosen.
3: The question for the house managers from Senators Stabenow, Cortez Masto, and Rosen, to both, both parties. In June 2019, Ellen Weintraub, then chair of the Federal Election Commission, wrote in a statement that, quote, it is illegal for any person to solicit, accept, or receive anything of value from a foreign national in connection with the U.S. election. This is not a novel concept. Electoral intervention from foreign governments has been considered unacceptable since the beginnings of our nation, end quote. In a 2007 advisory opinion, the FEC found that campaign contributions from foreign nationals are prohibited in federal elections, even if, quote, the value of these materials may be nominal or difficult to ascertain, end quote. How valuable would a public announcement of an investigation into the Bidens be for President Trump's reelection campaign?
7: We'll begin with the White House counsel. Mr. Chief Justice and Senators, thank you for the question. Um, The idea that these investigations were a thing of value is something that was specifically examined by the Department of Justice. As I explained the other day, the Inspector General for the Intelligence Community wrote a cover letter on the whistleblower complaint, which he had actually exaggerated in the complaint, the idea that there was a demand for some assistance uh, with the President's reelection campaign. That was forwarded to the Department of Justice, they examined it, and they announced back in September that there was no election law violation because they did not qualify as a thing of value. Um, And I think that that issue has been thoroughly examined by the Department of Justice here as a matter of law. And think about this, if pure information, if information that came to someone in a campaign could be called a thing of value, If it comes from overseas, a thing of value is a prohibited campaign contribution. It's not allowed. If it comes from within the country, it has to be reported. So that would mean that any time a campaign got information from within the country about an opponent or about something else that maybe would be useful in the campaign, they'd have to report the receipt of information as a thing of value under the campaign finance laws. That's not how the laws work, and there would be tremendous first amendment implications if someone attempted to enforce the laws that way so that's simply the point that i wanted to make pure information that is credible information is not something that is prohibited from being received under the campaign finance laws
3: thank you counsel.
9: mr chief justice i'm sorry i apologize
6: yes mr manager how valuable would it be for the president to get Ukraine to announce these investigations? And the answer is immensely valuable. Uh, and if it wasn't going to be immensely valuable, why would the president go to such lengths to make it happen? Why would he be willing to violate the law, the Impeachment Control Act? Why would he be willing to ignore the advice of all of his national security professionals? Why would he be willing to withhold hundreds of millions of dollars from an ally at war? if he didn't think it was gonna really benefit his campaign. You have only to look at the president's actions to determine just how valuable he believed it would be to him. Now, how would he make use of this? Well, if we look in the past, we get a perfect illustration of how Donald Trump would have made use of this political help from Ukraine. Let's look at 2016, when the Russians hacked the DCCC and the DNC, and they started dripping out these documents through WikiLeaks and other Russian platforms. What did the president do? Did he make use of it? Did he condemn it? Oh, he made beautiful use of it. Over a hundred times in the last three months of the campaign, the president brought up time after time after time, rally after rally after rally, the Clinton Russian stolen documents. Now, we've had a debate since then. What was the impact of the Russian interference in 2016? In an election that close, was it decisive? No one will ever know. Was it valuable? You only have to look at Donald Trump's actions to know just how valuable he thought it was. He thought it was immensely valuable. And you can darn well expect that if he'd gotten his help from Ukraine, he'd be out there every day talking about how Ukraine was investigating Joe Biden. In Ukraine is conducting an investigation into Joe Biden, it would be proof of his argument against his feared opponent. You're darn right it would be valuable. What's more, it's illegal. And do we have to go through all the turmoil of the Russian interference for have, to have the president do it all over again? One of the things that I found so significant, it was the day after Bob Mueller reached his conclusion that this president was back on the phone asking yet another country to help cheat in another election. You're darn right that would have been valuable.
3: The question from Senator Warren is for the House managers. At a time when large majorities of Americans have lost faith in government, does the fact that the Chief Justice is presiding over an impeachment trial in which Republican Senators have thus far refused to allow witnesses or evidence contribute to the loss of legitimacy of the Chief Justice, the Supreme Court, and the Constitution?
6: Senator, I would not say that it contributes to a loss of confidence in the Chief Justice. I think the Chief Justice has presided admirably. I don't think a trial without witnesses reflects adversely on the Chief Justice. I do think it reflects adversely on us. I think it diminishes the power of this example to the rest of the world if we cannot have a fair trial in the face of this kind of presidential misconduct. This is the remedy. This is the remedy for presidential abuse. But it does not reflect well on any of us if we are afraid of what the evidence holds. If this will be the first trial in America where the defendant says at the beginning of the trial, if the prosecution case is so good, why don't they prove it without any witnesses? That's not a model we can hold up with pride to the rest of the world. And yes, Senator, I think that will feed cynicism about this institution. That we may disagree on the president's conduct or not, but we can't even get a fair trial.
3: The question from
6: Senator Shelby is for the
3: counsel for the president. Though not charged in the articles of impeachment, House managers and others have stated the President's actions constituted criminal bribery. Can this claim be reconciled with the Supreme Court's unanimous decision in McDonald versus United States?
7: Mr. Chief Justice, Senator, thank you for that question. And I think the, the answer is no, it can't be reconciled with the McDonald case. Um, and let me make a couple of points in my answer. The first is, of course, because there is no bribery or extortion charged in the articles of impeachment, uh, the managers can't rely on that now to try to establish their case.
3: The question from Senator Warner and the other senators is for the House managers. Our intelligence community and law enforcement leadership unanimously concluded Russia interfered in the 2016 election and that Russia continues those efforts toward the 2020 election. The Mueller report and the Senate Intelligence Committee reached the same conclusion. Yesterday, the President's counsel said that foreign election interference could be legal if it's related to credible information. Does this mean it is proper for the President to accept or encourage Russia, China, or other foreign countries to produce damaging intelligence or information targeting his domestic political opponents as long as he deems it to be from credible information. For the House managers.
6: Senators of Justice, that is the natural conclusion of what the president's lawyers are arguing. Essentially that if the president believes that it would serve his re-election interest to seek the help of a foreign intelligence service, to provide dirt on his opponent, or in other ways assist his campaign, as long as he thinks his winning is in the national interest, then that's OK. It's not only no, OK, but no restraint can be placed upon it. Uh, even if he were to go so far as to proclaim a quid pro quo, hey, Russia, you've got among the best intelligence services on the planet if you will engage those intelligence services on my behalf, I will refuse to enforce sanctions on you over your invasion of Ukraine. That may injure the security of our country, but look, I think my reelection is more important. That's where this bastardization of the Constitution leads us. The idea that no abuse of power is within the reach of the Congress.
3: Thank you, Ms. Manager. Mr. Chief Justice. The Democratic leader is recognized.
9: I send a, a question to the desk for the House Managers.
3: Thank you. The question from Senator Schumer for the House Managers. Many of our colleagues are worried that if we were able to bring witnesses and documents in the trial, it would take too long. Mr. Schiff mentioned we could do depositions in one week. Please elaborate. What can you say that will reassure us that having witnesses and documents can be done in a short time, minimally impeding the business of the Senate? Uh,
6: I thank the Senator for the question. Uh, First of all, with respect to the documents uh, that we subpoenaed and sought to get in the House, those documents have been collected. Um, So that work has been done. We've been informed, for example, the State Department documents have been collected. Those could readily be provided provided. Uh, to the senate for its consideration with respect to witnesses if we agree to a one week period to do depositions while you continue to conduct the business of the senate it doesn't mean that we would have unlimited witnesses during that week we would have to we would have to decide on witnesses who are relevant and probative of the issues neither side would have an unlimited capacity to call endless witnesses we would have a limited period of time, just as we had a limited period of time for our opening presentations and for this question and answer period. If there was any dispute over whether a witness is truly material and probative, that decision could be made by the Chief Justice uh, in very short order. If there was a dispute as to whether a passage in a document is covered by an applicable privilege, and if for the first time the White House should actually invoke a privilege, the Chief Justice could decide is that properly laid or is that merely an attempt to conceal crime or fraud? So this can be done very quickly, and a reasonable accommodation would be, we'll take one week, you'll continue with the business in the Senate, uh, we'll do the depositions, and then we'll come back and we'll present to you uh, what the witnesses had to say in those depositions. And that's how we contemplate the process would work.
3: Senators Wyden, Menendez, and Brown ask the House managers, The president's counsel has argued that the president's actions are based on his desire to root out corruption. However, new reporting indicates that Attorney General Barr and former National Security Advisor Bolton shared concerns that the president was granting personal favors to autocratic foreign leaders like President Erdoğan of Turkey. The president has also acknowledged his private business interests in the country, like Trump Towers Istanbul. The Treasury Department has not denied that the President directed Treasury and the Department of Justice to intervene in the criminal investigation of Halkbank, the Turkish state-owned bank, which has been accused of a scheme to evade Iranian sanctions. Has the President engaged in a pattern of conduct in which he places his personal and political interests above the national security interests of the United States?
5: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and also want to thank uh, the Senators, again, for your hospitality and for listening uh, to both sides as we've endeavored to answer your questions. Thank you for that uh, question. I think, first and foremost, there has been a troubling pattern of possible conflicts of interest that we've seen from the beginning of this administration through this moment. But the allegation here related to the abuse of power charge is that in this specific instance, the president tried to cheat by soliciting foreign interference in an American election, by trying to gin up phony investigations against a political opponent. Now, what counsel for the president has said is that what the president was really interested in is corruption, that he's an anti-corruption crusader. For you to believe the president's narrative, you have to conclude that he's an anti-corruption crusader. Perhaps his domestic record is part of what senators can reasonably consider. But let's look at the facts of the central charge here. The president had two calls with President Zelensky, on April 21st and on July 25th. In both instances, he did not mention the word corruption once. Released the transcripts, the word corruption was not mentioned by Donald Trump once. We also know that in May of last year, President Trump's own Department of Justice, Defense indicated that the new Ukrainian government had met all necessary preconditions for the receipt of the military aid, including the implementation of anti-corruption reforms. That's President Trump's Department of Defense saying there is no corruption concern as it relates to the release of the aid. Now, I think we can all acknowledge, as the president's counsel indicated, that there was a general corruption challenge with Ukraine. I think the exact quote from Mr. Popora was, since the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukraine has suffered from one of the worst environments for corruption in the world. Certainly, I believe that that's the case. But here's the key question. Why did President Trump wait until 2019 to pretend as if he wanted to do something about corruption. Let's explore. Did Ukraine have a corruption problem in 2017? Generally, the answer is yes. Did President Trump dislike foreign aid in 2017? The answer is yes. What did President Trump do about these alleged concerns in 2017? The answer is nothing. Under the same exact conditions that the president now claims motivated him to seek a phony political investigation against the Bidens and place a hold on the money, the president did nothing. He did not seek an investigation into the Bidens in 2017. He did not put a hold on the aid in 2017. But the Trump administration oversaw $560 million in military and security aid to Ukraine in 2017. In 2018, the same conditions existed if President Trump is truly an anti-corruption crusader. But what happened in 2018? He didn't seek an investigation into the Bidens. He didn't put a hold on the aid. Rather, the Trump administration oversaw $620 million in military and security aid to Ukraine. Which brings us to this moment. Why the sudden interest In Burisma, in the Bidens, in alleged corruption concerns about Ukraine. What changed in 2019? What changed is that Joe Biden announced his candidacy. The president was concerned with that candidacy. Polls had him losing to the former vice president. And he was determined to stop Joe Biden by trying to cheat in the election, smear him, solicit foreign interference in 2020. That is an abuse of power. That is corrupt. Senator King asks the president's counsel,
3: would it be permissible for a president to inform the prime minister of Israel that he was holding congressional appropriated military aid unless the prime minister promised to come to the United States and publicly charge his opponent with anti-Semitism in the midst of an election campaign?
7: Mr. Chief Justice and Senator, uh, thank you for the question. But the question really has nothing to do with this case. I mean, it seems to be uh, trying to get at the most extreme hypothetical related to um, a misinterpretation of what Professor Dershowitz was saying the other night. It's totally irrelevant here.
3: Senator Murkowski asks counsel for the president. You explain that Ambassador Sondland and Senator Johnson both said the president explicitly denied that he was looking for a quid pro quo with Ukraine. The reporting on Ambassador Bolton's book suggests the president told Bolton directly that the aid would not be released until Ukraine announced the investigations the president desired. This dispute about material facts weighs in favor of calling additional witnesses with direct knowledge. Why should this body not call Ambassador Bolton?
7: Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, thank you for the question. And I think the primary consideration here is to understand that the House could have pursued Ambassador Bolton. The house considered whether or not they would try to have him come testify and subpoena him they chose not to subpoena him and this all goes back to the most important consideration i think that this chamber has before it in some ways especially on this threshold issue of whether there should be witnesses or not has to do with the precedent that's established here for what kind of impeachment proceeding this body will accept from now going forward. Because whatever is accepted in this case becomes the new normal for every impeachment proceeding in the future. And it will do grave damage to this body as an institution to say that the proceedings in the House don't have to really be complete.
3: The question from Senator Schatz, White House, and Heinrich for both parties, can the White House really not admit that Senator King's hypothetical would be wrong? We begin with the, the House managers.
6: Senator, we have no trouble uh, recognizing just how wrong that would be. Uh, but more than that, it's the natural extension of Professor Dershowitz's argument um, that if the President believed that that kind of quid pro quo would help his reelection, then it's perfectly fine and non impeachable. There was a reason, of course, why they didn't want to address that hypothetical, but uh, let me go back also to the question that was asked about the other written reports that Ambassador Bolton and uh, Attorney General Barr were concerned that the President was intervening in cases in which he had business investments like Turkey. Under the theory of the President's lawyers, that's perfectly okay too. If the President thinks somehow that that's in the United States' interest because it's in his interest. That's perfectly fine, it's unimpeachable. Now, is it, is it a crime to give preference to autocrats, uh, to give special consideration to autocrats where you have business investments? That may not be criminal, but it is impeachable. It certainly should be impeachable uh, if we are going to sacrifice the national security of the country, if we're gonna withhold military aid, if we're going to bestow uh, favors Uh, in U.S. resources to countries where the President has investments, is that what we want driving U.S. policy? But that's the implication of what they have to
7: say. Mr. Chief Justice, uh, Senator, thank you for the question. Let me just uh, begin by noting, I I think it's a a little bit rich for Manager Schiff to say that one party, i.e., the President, is going to deny them witnesses. It was the president who has denied any witnesses throughout this process up till now. But to get back to the question on um, Senator King's hypothetical, if, if the president insisted that a foreign leader come here and lie about someone else, and he was holding up uh, military aid or a package of congressional aid and saying, you have to go out and lie about this, that, that would be wrong, but it's not this case and it has nothing to do with this case.
3: The question from Senators Peters and Cornyn for both parties. How would the verdict in this trial alter the balance of power between the executive and legislative branches in the future? The president's counsel goes first.
8: A verdict, a final judgment of acquittal, would be the best thing for our country and would send a great message that will actually help in our separation of powers.
6: It may be different in the court than it is in this chamber and in the House, but when anybody begins the sentence with the phrase, I have the greatest respect for, you have to look out for what follows. Um, We trust the justice will make the right decision. Um, The justice has, I think, conducted these proceedings in an eminently fair way. There is nothing in the Constitution that would preclude us from taking a week to hear from witnesses and allowing the Chief Justice to make those calls. Uh, And so it's a false argument to say or suggest that the whole body would need to conduct the whole of the depositions. So much as we would like live testimony, we've offered a compromise. But with respect to the question about what will this do to the balance of power, I would say this. As I mentioned earlier, our relationship with Ukraine will survive this debacle. But if we hold that a president can defy all subpoenas, can tie up the Congress endlessly with bad faith claims of privilege, claiming here one thing, claiming in court something else, it will eviscerate our oversight power. If the president is allowed to decide which subpoenas they will deign to consider valid and which they will deign to consider invalid, your oversight power, our oversight power is gone. That is an irrevocable change to the balance of power. The
3: question from Senator Manchin for both parties and we'll begin with the president's counsel. Over the past two weeks, the White House counsel had detailed all the problems associated with the House's decision to move quickly through their impeachment proceedings. Why shouldn't this body heed their advice and slow down and at least allow the judge to rule in the McCann case to give the members of this body an official opinion from the judiciary on Article
7: 2. Mr. Chief Justice, Senator, thank you for the question. And I I think the key point here is the McGahn case is not going to directly resolve something related to the obstruction charges here. It's going to address a legal issue with respect to uh, an assertion of absolute immunity for Don McGahn. There should be a decision from the DC circuit sometime soon. But that will almost certainly go to the Supreme Court. I mean, if that immunity is being challenged and it's been relied upon by the executive for over 40 years, that's an issue destined for the Supreme Court. So the idea, it's not going to be just slow down here a little bit. This trial can't be held open pending the final resolution of that litigation. And that's an important point, because this is something that Alexander Hamilton pointed out in Federalist Number 65 when he was discussing who should be the body to try impeachments and one consideration was potentially drawing in judges from various states to create a new body to try impeachments and the rationale that hamilton gave for that would be a bad idea is that there has to be swift progression from an impeachment to the trial to a verdict to having it finished precisely because this is where he talked about the persecution of an intemperate or designing majority in the House of Representatives. He recognized there could be partisan impeachments, and that accusation, that impeachment, shouldn't be hanging out there. There should be a swift trial.
3: Question from Senator Klobuchar to the House managers. Could you please respond to the answer just given by the President's counsel and provide any other comments the Senate would benefit from hearing before we adjourn for the evening?
9: Mr. Chief Justice, members of the uh, Senate, what we've just heard from the House, from the uh, President's Council, is the usual nonsense. There are only three, as we draw to a close tonight, there are only three things to remember. One, this is a trial. As a trial, as any 10 year old knows, we should have witnesses. We are told we can't have witnesses because after all the House Says we proved our case as we have, and so why should we need witnesses? Well, that's like saying that in a bank robbery, the DA announces that he's proved his case, he's had all the witnesses, and then an eyewitness shows up and he shouldn't be allowed to testify because, after all, the DA was sure he proved his case first. That's absurd. Any 10 year old knows it's absurd, and that's the President's case against witnesses, that we've had enough, there's always more. There aren't too many more here, but the fact is, when there are witnesses to be asked, they should be asked. Second, there's only one real question in this trial. Everything else is a distraction. a three card Monte game being played by the President's counsel, distractions. Don't look at the real question. Look at everything else. Everything else irrelevant. Look at the whistleblower, irrelevant. Look at the House procedures, irrelevant. Look at Hunter Biden, irrelevant. Look at whether President Obama's policy was as good as or better than President Trump's policy with respect to uh, Ukraine, irrelevant. Look at the steel dossier, irrelevant. There's only one relevant question. Did the president abuse his power by violating the law to withhold military aid from a foreign country to extort that country into helping him, into helping his reelection campaign by slandering his opponent? That's the only relevant question for this trial. The house managers have proved that question beyond any doubt. The one thing the house managers, the president's counsel got right was quoting me as saying it was beyond any doubt. It is indeed beyond any doubt. That's why all these distractions, that's why the president's people are telling you to avoid witnesses because they are afraid of the witnesses. They know the witnesses, they know Mr. Bolton and others will only strengthen the case. And yes, we hear, well, if the house managers say the case is so strong, why do you need more witnesses? Because the truth can be bolstered.
2: The impeachment is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. From the Goat Rodeo team, Supervising Producer Megan Adulski, Creative Producer Shar Dreyer, Executive Producer Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittis, Margaret Taylor, Michaela Fogel, Quinta Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, David Priest, Hadley Baker, Hannah Chris. Special thanks to Caitlin Riley and John Weiss. The impeachment will continue tomorrow. Until next time.